This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something getting in the way of your happiness? I mean, other than the constant crisis that is America right now? Something preventing you from achieving your goals? For me, it's overthinking. And honestly, I don't know what I would do without my therapist to talk to every week about what's flying around inside my head. BetterHelp will figure out what you need and match you with your own licensed therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. They have a whole range of therapists and services available worldwide. You can log into your account and send a message to your therapist anytime you want. And you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you have a designated time to be with them. And trust me, I know how important having the right therapist can be. So BetterHelp is committed to setting you up with a therapist that truly connects with you and make it easy and free to change if it's not working. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And I want that for you too. So visit betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl and join the over 2 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's better H-E-L-P slash politicsgirl for 10% off your first month. Because honestly, as you try and make the world better, your life deserves to be better too. Betterhelp.com. Did you see the new cover of The Atlantic? The bad guys are winning. How a new league of autocrats is outsmarting the West by the brilliant Anne Applebaum. It's so depressing because she's not wrong and the freaking Republicans are in bed with them. <sighs> I tell you, we got to take these monsters down. Not today, Satan. Not today! Great picture, though. Mmm! Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan, and thank you for caring enough about democracy to join me. Let's get into it. So last week, we witnessed the Supreme Court of the United States signal that they will not only be upholding the 15-week abortion ban out of Mississippi, which would abandon the 24-week fetal viability settled in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, settled law in America for 30 years, but also seemed ready to overrule the established precedent of Roe v. Wade, settled 50 years ago, that constitutionally guarantees a woman's right to an abortion in the United States. So something that's been around my entire existence as settled law is now set to be overturned, leaving the fate of the American woman to the political, moral, and religious whims of each individual state. The thing is, our entire legal system is built on precedent, or decisions, made by the Supreme Court. Lawyers all over the country use cases that have been decided by the highest court in the land as examples of why a judge or jury should rule in their favor. Supreme Court decisions are the foundation of our entire rule of law, and because of this, you have to have a really, really good reason to overturn a settled Supreme Court decision. So unless some grievous injustice has taken place, the court is supposed to uphold its own previous rulings in order to give our justice system a sense of stability. Roe and Casey have been relitigated endless times over the past half century, and the courts have always come to the same conclusion, that the women of America have the constitutional right to make a private decision of whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. Science hasn't changed. Pregnancy hasn't changed. The burden on the potential mother hasn't changed. Women's rights remain theoretically equal to men's rights. So the only thing that has changed since Casey and Roe were decided is the makeup of the court itself. That's the only difference. In fact, the sponsors of the bill for Mississippi have said that they only brought this case now because there are new justices. So they aren't there to argue a new case. They're there to get a new result. Here's the thing. The Supreme Court's power comes from the idea that it is above politics. We are supposed to believe that they are following established rules, that the law itself is its own living, breathing thing. The justices are simply there to interpret it, that our legal system is based on something greater and more substantial than the personal preferences of political appointees. That's why they have to go through nomination periods and be questioned and confirmed by the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's an insanely consequential job that affects the entire country. So the implication that you can have the same facts but get a different result with a different set of justices casts doubt on the legitimacy of the court itself. 
Sitting Justice Sonia Sotomayor spoke to this point by basically saying, if we do this, if we overturn a law and force women to proceed with unwanted pregnancies, if we say it's okay for states to choose to not only physically complicate their existence and put them at medical risk and make them poorer, and we don't have a reason for it other than political will, how can this court survive? She says, and I quote, Will this institution survive the stench this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are nothing more than political acts? Because if our laws are only dependent on who sits on the highest court, and who sits there is dependent entirely on politics, then how can our courts themselves be anything other than a political entity? And if they're political entities, why aren't they elected? Why do they get lifetime appointments, and why do these nine people get to decide all of our laws when no one chose them to lead us? It was an extraordinarily serious statement for a sitting justice to make, because the implications are, if this is the way the court is going to conduct itself, perhaps the court shouldn't have the kind of power it does. So it's not just the rights of women that are on the chopping block with this case. It's our belief in the authority of the Supreme Court itself. We have to remember the Supreme Court of 2021 is not a normal court. It's the court that Trump built, with the help of the obstruction of Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate. One third of the court was nominated by the twice impeached one term president who tried to overturn the election and instigated an insurrection. Three of the five votes that look to strip women of their freedoms are from judges put on the court at the direct request of the conservative right wing Federalist Society as a quid pro quo for supporting Trump during the election. And every single one of them comes with political controversy. Neil Gorsuch was installed after the Republican Senate refused to hold hearings for Obama's nominee for 10 months because they said it was an election year and the people should really have a say in who the nominee was. Brett Kavanaugh was installed after a wildly contentious nomination that included the abrupt retirement of Justice Kennedy, whose son had given Donald Trump a loan at Deutsche Bank when no other bank would consider lending to him, credible accusations of attempted rape and sexual assault, a botched FBI investigation into his previous unscrupulous behavior, and public hearings that included the now-sitting justice both screaming and crying. Finally, in a complete contradiction to their stance four years before about not nominating a justice in an election year, the Republicans pushed through the extremely religious Amy Coney Barrett six days before the election without a single Democrat even present. So I think it's fair to say that these justices weren't chosen. They were installed. They were installed for a reason that appears to be to act as a political weapon for the far right. NARAL pro-choice American president Elsie Hoag reminds us that the Federalist Society specifically chose abortion as the litmus test for their aspiring judges because they saw it as a stand-in for the kind of regressive views they wanted in general. Hoag argues that ultimately their decisions are not really about abortion. They're about control. Abortion bans are not about fetal rights, state rights, or religious piety. They are about our fundamental principles of liberty, freedom, and the right to our own selves. Or who deserves rights and who does not? And apparently women do not fall on that list. Leading up to the hearing of the case, Republicans were pouring in and out of the Senate and the House, pontificating over the sanctity of life. Keep in mind, this is the same party that votes over and over again to do nothing about gun violence or children getting gunned down in their schools. This is the party that is anti-mask, anti-science, who has sowed endless doubt in an FDA-approved life-saving vaccine in the middle of a deadly pandemic. The same party that keeps voting against expanding America's access to health care, who wants to cut Medicaid and has unsuccessfully tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act 70 times, even though all evidence shows that doing so would cause the unnecessary death of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. These are the same right-wing advocates who routinely oppose any environmental regulations restricting pollutants that threaten our health and who recently suggested we should get rid of OSHA, the organization that makes the American workplace safe for its workers. As Washington Post writer Jennifer Rubin writes, we need to expose the fundamental dishonesty of the pro-life movement. They claim to be all about saving innocent life, 
but in no other context does innocent life eviscerate all other liberties and interests. This is the same group of people screaming about their freedoms being trampled because they're asked to wear a mask when they go into a bed, bath and beyond, who demand we keep stores open during the pandemic because it will sustain the economy and who argued all the way up to the Supreme Court that it was constitutionally unfair to force them to make a cake for a gay wedding, but forcing people to act as human incubators? No problem. Rubin points out that the only ones legally denied the right to self-determination in this country are women. She says, set aside the arrogance that all questions about personhood are supposed to be viewed through the lens of the Christian faith, since there are many other religious traditions, even Christianity itself, that debate the idea of when life begins, and focus instead on the idea that a woman's right to bodily autonomy must be sacrificed for the sake of another. She asks, in what other context is somebody's body, health, and daily life commandeered to save someone else? No one would support a law that said you were legally obligated to donate your organs or bone marrow if you were a match. Rubin says, let's not pretend this is about the noble principle of saving innocent life. This is about denying women the power to decide if they want to undergo a substantial physical, hormonal, emotional, and financial obligation for nine months and then raise a child for a minimum of 18 years or give that child up and live with that burden, whatever it might be, for the rest of their lives. Rubin says, until we're ready to demand similar obligations for all Americans in a host of other contexts that will severely limit their personal autonomy, we should be honest enough to recognize that this has nothing to do with innocent life and everything to do with controlling women. There's a myth that the religious right, the coalition of conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists, have always been unified in their response to the moral failings of Roe v. Wade. This is an origin story they tell a lot because it sounds noble. Jerry Falwell, the fundamentalist preacher and founder of Liberty University, used to tell a story about how he read the news of Roe v. Wade in the paper and was so overcome by the consequences of the tragic decision that he decided in that moment he must organize his flock to overturn this law. They called themselves the New Abolitionists because he felt their cause was as pure and justified as those who had fought to eradicate slavery. Well, that's a nice story, Jerry. Too bad it's total bullshit. Because when you look at the historical facts, it wasn't until 1979, a full six years after Roe was decided, that evangelical leaders under the leadership of conservative activist Paul Weinrich, who had already tried a host of other issues to try and get Christian voters engaged, pornography, prayer in schools, equal rights amendment, took up the fight against abortion. And to be clear, Weinrich and his conservative Christian co-conspirators weren't actually mad about abortion. They were mad about school desegregation and the fact that all the Christian academies that had popped up in response to Brown v. Board of Education were about to lose their tax-exempt status for practicing massive discrimination in order to keep their schools white. Weinrich needed something evangelicals and conservative Christians could rally around that wasn't so blatantly racist so they could elect a leader that would look the other way in their self-segregation. So he started talking about saving babies. And boy, did that work. Turns out, Christian fundamentalists had been upset for years about the progress America was making because they believed it threatened their traditional moral values. They didn't like the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement. They thought young people were too sexually permissive. They didn't like that schools were teaching evolution. They were angry that the country took prayer out of schools and they hated the music. This is where Jerry Falwell comes in. Falwell took this discontent and weaponized it founding the Moral Majority, an American political organization to combat the amoral liberals and the coddling of criminals, homosexuality, and communism. Does that sound familiar? A little bit too close to home, maybe? To be clear, the abortion part of the Moral Majority was a bit of an afterthought. It just turned out to be such a great sell. People loved to say they were pro-life. And to paraphrase Alabama pastor Dave Barnhart, the unborn are an incredibly convenient group to advocate for. They don't make demands, they're morally uncomplicated, they don't question your beliefs, and they allow you to feel good about yourself without doing any real work. 
And then when they're born, you can forget about them. Advocating for the unborn poses no challenge to your own wealth or power or privilege. You get to say you represent Jesus' love without actually helping any of the people Jesus talked about. The poor, widows, orphans, immigrants, prisoners, the sick, the stranger. You get to say you are protecting the sanctity of life without actually having to give a damn about anyone who's actually alive. That's a pretty good deal. You get to stand on the moral high ground, but with zero moral obligations. And though the moral majority only formally lasted for 10 years, it established the religious right as a major force in American politics, created the abortion one-issue voter, and changed the course of American history by getting Ronald Reagan, who was pro-choice until he saw how helpful this group could be, elected. Being anti-abortion was just a strategy that worked, and it continues to work to this day. The public support for the legal right to an abortion has never been higher, but here we are in the midst of an all-out assault on our reproductive freedoms. How is that possible? Because again, it is not about abortion. It's about control. So let's take a break on the all-out assault on women's rights for a palate cleanser about one woman and her assault on the English language in a segment I like to call, I don't think that word means what you think it means. This week, Georgia Republican Congresswoman, CrossFit advocate, and seditious professional irritant Marjorie Taylor Greene made a video from her car that was broadcast on all right-wing stations calling Joe Biden a communist. She said, that's what the Democrats are. They're communists. A lot of people are swallowing down the word socialists, but they're communists. As one brilliant person immediately noted, socialist and socialism aren't having the impact they once did, so the right wing has to move on to communist and communism. It's a little like doing drugs. Over time, you have to keep pushing the boundaries to get that same high. But it actually drives me crazy when people throw around words without having any idea what they mean. So today, we're gonna talk about the word communist. When people say communism, I think they must mean the opposite of freedom. Like, you wanna control everything I do. Which isn't entirely wrong, because communism is the opposite of freedom, in that personal liberties take a backseat to state control. Communism's goal is to set up a society where equality is more important than liberty. In a communist society, the government controls everything. There is no such thing as private property, and the state is a one-party state. There is no opposition party. There is only the party. In a communist regime, there is no criticizing of the government. You can't say, record yourself in a car railing on the president without ending up in jail or disappeared. In China, you can't go on a website without the government approving it. You can't protest. You can't even search for an image of Winnie the Pooh because someone once said the leader Xi Jinping looked like him and that made him mad. So I can promise you, in a communist government, no one would be saying, let's go Brandon. Democracy and personal liberty still have a place under socialism, but not under communism. It's dependent on top-down governing and government in charge of every aspect of life. So again, you can think there's government overreach, we can have constitutional challenges, but throwing around a word like communism in a democratic republic is like calling your dog a cat. And for the record, Madge, those are two completely different animals. So, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And we're back. We're talking abortion, the Supreme Court, and America's love for its hatred of women. Let's go back, way back. Believe it or not, in American colonial times, abortion was a legal and acceptable thing. Until the mother felt what was called the quickening or the movement of the baby, abortion was just a normal part of life. Services for abortion were marketed openly. Drugs to induce abortions were big business. They were advertised in newspapers and could be bought in pharmacies and doctor's offices, even through the mail. And if the drugs didn't work, women could go to the doctor for a procedure. In fact, according to historian Leslie Reagan, before the quickening, no one even believed that the human life existed, not even the Catholic Church. The most common idea around pregnancy was just to let women deal with whatever was happening with their own bodies. Abortion actually became illegal in America, not at the urging of the church, but from the medical establishment, who were, one, trying to run off their own competitors, midwives and homeopaths, 
and two, not so thrilled that women were lobbying for entrance into medical school. According to Reagan, whose 1996 book on abortion history is considered to be the most comprehensive, the force behind the first anti-abortion campaign was a Dr. Horatio Storer, whose anti-abortion movement was a reaction to the shifting aspirations of women in American society and the influx of immigrants into the country. Since the majority of women getting abortions at the time were married white Christian women, men like Horatio Storer were incredibly concerned that not only did these women want to compete with them at work, but they would lower the white birth rate at the exact same time immigration was going up. To paraphrase Storer, the destiny of our nation is dependent on the loins of our women, which sounds pretty similar to what Republican Representative Madison Cawthorn just said in Congress last week, that women are earthen vessels sanctified by Almighty God. So... Anti-abortion activists in the 1800s are pretty similar to anti-abortion activists of today. Just fundamentally misogynistic, xenophobic, privileged white dudes making life choices for others because they're afraid of losing their privilege and power. In fact, God never really played a part in the anti-abortion movement until it became politicized. And then the church, who had previously seen abortions as taboo but accepted, decided to officially condemn it. So in 1869, the church explicitly outlawed abortions, and by 1880, the American Medical Association had almost completely restricted abortion access, including banning all previously available abortion drugs. So we had autonomy over our own bodies until the white male Christian patriarchy decided we shouldn't. And 142 years later, we're in the same goddamn spot. And to be clear, history and dirty dancing tell us that banning abortions does not stop abortions. It only makes them more dangerous because people will resort to unsafe alternatives when their backs are against the wall. It's actually estimated that during the 50s and 60s, there were possibly as many as 1.2 million illegal abortions in the United States. But by then, the women's liberation movement was gaining steam. And for them, reproductive rights were front and center. This time, however, healthcare providers, the legal community, and many clergy members were all on board to help the women's rights activists overturn what they saw as the rigid and unnecessary laws around women's bodies. Between 1967 and 1973, four states, Alaska, Hawaii, New York, and Washington, had already repealed their abortion bans, while 13 others had reformed theirs. Before Roe was even decided, lawsuits challenging the criminality of abortions was working their way through the courts in a dozen more states. So by the time we got to January 1973, when an unmarried woman named Jane Roe petitioned the court to allow her to safely and legally end her pregnancy, the U.S. Supreme Court had already ruled states were not allowed to interfere with certain personal decisions about procreation, marriage, and family life for married people, and seven years later for single people, and it was those two cases that set the precedent for Roe. With Roe, the Supreme Court ruled that the constitutional right to privacy was big enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate a pregnancy, and that a woman's right to make her own decisions about her pregnancy deserved the highest level of constitutional protection. So once again, women were allowed to make decisions for their own personal health, and that opened up the world, allowing them to pursue educational and employment opportunities that were unthinkable prior to Roe. We can never forget that a woman's right to an abortion is directly tied to her access to economic opportunity. In 1986, when the religious right tried to overturn the law, Justice Harry Blackman, the original author of Roe, reaffirmed that few decisions are more personal, basic, or intimate to an individual's dignity and autonomy than the decision to terminate a pregnancy. In 1992, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Supreme Court noted that the ability of a woman to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their own reproductive lives. In 1994, after yet another attempt to overturn the law, the same Justice Blackman called Roe a step that had to be taken towards the full emancipation of women. 
And yet here we are in the 21st century at the precipice of not only taking away our most fundamental and basic rights, but to actually make it worse for women than it was in 1973. Because states are now showing no intention of legal carve-outs in the case of rape or incest or the health of the mother. When considering such a thing 30 years ago, Justice Blackman himself said a decision like that would be a cruel and immoral type of lawmaking. If I'm being honest, I'm actually sick and tired of discussing abortion. I'm exhausted by the endless discussions around Roe v. Wade. I'm completely over the hypocrisy of the pro-life movement and the court cases and opinions and politicking around the issue. Why should a woman's right to her own body be dependent on some 50-year-old court case and the potential political, religious, or misogynistic tendencies of nine politically appointed justices? Why should we continue to hold our breath and pray for good counsel or a fair and balanced legal system when it comes to what we are allowed to do with our own person? Mississippi said it themselves. They brought this case now because the makeup of the court has changed and they now expect a verdict in their favor. That is not how American justice is supposed to work. Justices are supposed to be impartial. The law is supposed to be blind. The God-given rights of the American citizen should not be dependent on the whims of a lifetime political appointee. Our needs are supposed to be represented by elected members of Congress who speak for the people, not dependent on who died or retired during the last president's administration. This crisis we find ourselves in only proves that America has needed a new law for a long time, but has done nothing about it. Both parties have counted on Roe to do the heavy lifting for them. The Democrats had 49 years to codify Roe into law, and they did nothing. The Republicans had 49 years to fundraise and win elections on getting rid of Roe, and now it appears they finally succeeded. I think it's going to be a little like the dog that caught the car. I mean, what now? Because if you can't run on the idea of overturning Roe, what do the Republicans even stand for other than helping the rich avoid taxes, lack of regulation for profit, and whatever the classless, clueless monsters like Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, and Matt Gates stand for? You can't really be the party of pro-life if you're pro-war, pro-death penalty, anti-mask, anti-science, anti-environment, and anti-Muppet. By making abortion illegal, you can take your one-issue voter and toss them in the trash. You better hope they don't notice you've been robbing them blind and voting against their interests for the last 40 years while they were out there protecting the unborn. As I said in one of my rants, the bottom line is America needs a law sanctifying bodily autonomy. We can all agree that our body is our own, that you can't touch my body without permission, that abusing or hurting someone else's body is illegal. We can't even take organs from a dead body to save someone else's life unless that person agreed to donate their organs before they died. Our bodies belong to us. And anything that suggests otherwise should be against the law. If I don't want to carry a baby to term, I shouldn't have to. My womb belongs to me. No one can use it without my permission, not even a fetus. And that shouldn't change no matter what state I live in. We need a law that's about more than abortion, about more than women, because God knows enough people hate both. We can't continue to pick and choose who gets full autonomy over their body and who does not. We need a law that says you have the final word on what happens to you. If you want to have surgery to remove or alter a part of your body, be it a nose job, top surgery, a hysterectomy, that should be your choice and your choice alone. If I'm dying slowly of a degenerative disease, it should be my choice to legally end my life and go out on my own terms. And yes, if I don't want to grow a human being inside my body for nine months, no one should be able to force me to, no matter what I'm legally allowed to do with the baby afterward. The government, the church, and the court should have no place in our decisions over our own person, and our laws should reflect that. Because if we decide the government has the right to say you must carry a baby to term, you can't have an abortion, who is to say a different government couldn't come along and say the opposite? You can't carry that baby to term. You must have an abortion. 
And that isn't some squid game future reality, by the way. That's exactly what happened in China with their one-child policy. And we can all agree that was a horrendous law, which in hindsight caused China nothing but problems, but now serves as a stark warning as to why we need a law that takes the government out of the equation. A law that codifies bodily autonomy and makes sure that your life and your body always and forever belong to you. Since the moment Roe was decided, the Supreme Court continually heard cases looking to strip away at or ban abortions, and this time they may have just succeeded. So we have to ask ourselves what we're going to do about it. Because lest we forget, women still die every day in America from childbirth. The U.S. has the highest death rate for mothers among the developed world, and black women experience that rate two to three times higher than white women. In fact, maternal deaths have gone up consistently since 2000, and each year two-thirds of those deaths are considered preventable. But we don't prevent them because we don't have enough maternity care providers. We have no universal health care, no mandated maternity or family leave in the postpartum period, and doctors are statistically shown to ignore and undervalue the pain of black women. More than 50% of pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S. happen after the birth, with complications like severe bleeding, high blood pressure, and infections. So when people get all riled up about the sanctity of life, keep in mind the amount of women who will lose theirs because of this decree. That earthen vessel, we're setting her up for some serious suffering. As Jennifer Rubin writes, for the state to impose that women carry a fetus to full term is such a denial of individual liberties that the idea of women's equality should be declared dead. Because without an equivalent law that applies to men, how is it not discrimination on the basis of sex? Add to that the fact that the courts will mandate that a woman carry a fetus to full term without also mandating that the man responsible assume financial responsibility only further proves this is about power over women. Who's going to pay for these forced pregnancies? How many people will go bankrupt by the medical costs? What if the child needs to be in the NICU or you're uninsured or you have to work? It appears the Supreme Court of 2021 will now be setting the precedent that what women want in America is irrelevant. Not to mention how many other laws are based on the precedent of Roe v. Wade. The law that made gay marriage legal? It's based on Roe. You're telling me if Roe fails, there isn't a group of people coming after those rights based on this new precedent? This decision is going to have a hideous domino effect. During oral arguments, Justice Brett Kavanaugh ran down a long list of cases he felt had overturned historical precedent, trying to justify his desire to overturn Roe. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preloger pointed out that the justice was ignoring a crucial point, that the decisions he was citing, the ones that overturned precedent, were so we could expand human rights, while overturning Roe would be taking rights away. And that is a very different thing. Amy Coney Barrett kept circling around the argument that women don't need abortion rights because in all 50 states you can terminate parental rights after giving birth. As Amanda Marcotti from Salon Magazine pointed out, that only makes sense if one assumes women are merely ambulatory uteruses with no feelings or internal lives at all. In the real world, pregnancy is a difficult process, not just physically, but emotionally. Pregnancy isn't a houseplant you stick in the corner and ignore until someone comes to pick it up. You carry it with your body. People ask you about it. Actually, anyone who's been pregnant can tell you it's basically all anybody talks about when you're showing. It causes all sorts of hormonal and emotional reactions, and giving up a baby your body created is notoriously wrenching, even for those who are ready to do it. Coney Barrett goes on to say that we already have a precedent for forcing people to do something they don't want to do with their body by flippantly comparing vaccine mandates to forced pregnancy. As if getting a three-second vaccine by choice to say, keep yourself healthy or fulfill your work requirement can even be compared to forced childbirth. It's almost as if these justices don't see us as real people. And what their decision might take from all of us is without consequence. That a woman's plan for her own life is immaterial. 
that women in America can literally die for all they care. The fetus and making sure the fetus has the best chance to be born is the only thing that matters. Who will take care of that fetus once it's gestated by the human female? That's not the problem of the Federalist Society's court. This court seems to be ready to tie incest and rape survivors to their abusers, to put more children in the flooded and broken adoption and foster care system, to make more homeless mouths to feed when the unwanted children age out of government help. But none of that is apparently relevant to the five justices who will vote to strip us of our rights. As legal scholar, author, and Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe points out, Justice Barrett all but said that forced pregnancy is constitutionally acceptable as long as women don't face jail time for giving up their babies they're compelled to gestate. What a pathetically impoverished view of women's liberty, equality, and dignity. What a pathetically impoverished view indeed, Professor Tribe. The whole thing reminds me of the moral dilemma posed in the old Richard Matheson short story called Button Button, where a stranger gives you a box with a button and tells you if you push it, someone you don't know will die and you will get a million dollars. These justices are making a similar calculation. They've chosen power, money, or their belief in something over the lives of strangers not to mention their responsibility as impartial jurors and their oath to the law. This decision, which realistically we probably won't know till June, is garbage. All indication tells us that these justices will thwart justice because that is exactly what they were put on the court to do. They will push the button because they chose the reward over someone else's life. And I'm not sure, as Justice Sotomayor asked, that the court can survive the stench of such a decision. It might, but the fallout's going to be brutal. Brutal, but necessary. Because we can't live in a country where our laws are decided like this. A court that abandons its own precedent undermines its own authority. Why should our rights be dependent on the rulings of a small, unelected group of clearly dishonest political operatives that are full of such contempt for everyone but themselves? It is unsustainable and it won't stand. So that's it for this week. Please send money to NARAL, pro-choice America, who even now is fighting to keep the pressure on the Senate to pass the Women's Health Protection Act and protect a woman's rights to her own body no matter what this court decides. Get psyched to peacefully march in silent fury if and when this decision is made and talk to everyone you know about the importance of voting blue in 22 to support the party that is unapologetically pro-woman while shunning the party that would undermine our very rights as a person. Women are more than half of this country and undermining our personhood only opens a door to undermine so many more. This decision in this court cannot stand. Know that as you move forward and make the world a better place. I love you guys for caring enough to be here and listen. See you next week. Until then... PGF. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Touch Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.